This is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell with Texas's new anti-abortion law that turns every resident into an anti-abortion vigilante. Suddenly, every Texan's pregnancy is every Texan's business. This new law, SB8, as it is designated in Texas, causes inequality and enforces patriarchy, giving even more power to men over women. The belief is that Roe v. Wade's decision would always protect women's rights. In fact, the logic behind Roe is one of protecting reproductive rights through the legal precedents surrounding privacy. And once privacy is applied, it opens the door to regulating pregnancies. Then there's the problem with the logic of choice. As our guest today writes, choice is a consumerist concept and a bourgeois privilege. The neoliberal myth that your fate is your choice and your troubles are your fault obscures history, economics, and social reality. Now, there was a time when reproduction was not guided by the medical profession, and until the latter half of the uh, 19th century, the primary caregivers during pregnancy were not doctors, but midwives, doulas, and female healers. That is, until reproduction was captured by capitalism in the market. Being part of the market, capitalism does to pregnancy what it does to everything else. It criminalizes black, brown, and poor people. And in the case of reproduction, that includes the criminalization that comes with the war on drugs. Instead of focusing on privacy or choice, those supporting women's rights should instead be supporting bodily autonomy, which includes sexual freedom that the fight for reproductive rights actually caused. We must stop compelling women into the unpaid labor of giving birth and end the state interference into reproduction that has led to an adversarial relationship between mother and fetus. The anti-abortion movement is about controlling women's lives, even their sex lives. And if anti-abortionists were truly concerned about the safety of the fetus, they'd oppose things like poverty and racism that are real threats to any fetus. What is needed, argues today's guest, is abortion justice, which can then become part of the larger intersectional fight for justice currently being fought on many levels. In a few minutes, we will have the return of journalist, author, and essayist Judith Levine, who wrote the Boston Review article, Abortion is a Public Good, the Right to Reproductive Health and Agency is a Compelling State Interest. Judith has written five books exploring politics, policy, and public emotion, especially at the intersection of sex and justice. Judith's work focuses on the intersection between the body and the body politic. Her most recent work is last year's The Feminist and the Sex Offender, Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, which she co-authored with Erica R. Miners. This is Judith's second appearance on This Is Hell, having appeared on the show back in 2017 when she was on to talk about her N Plus One article, Descent into Liberalism. You can find that interview at our website right now, thisishell.com, when you search on the last name Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. Follow Judith on Twitter, at Judith Levine, and find out more about Judith at her website, judithlevine.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Not a whole lot, Chuck. How did you do on the marathon? <laughs> you know, you know, Brian Muir, our Brazil correspondent. Yes. His mom co-founded the Chicago Marathon. Wow. Is that crazy? He's got the weirdest connections in Chicago. That's how you end up at a German restaurant spending $350 with him eating schnitzel. Uh, this weekend, Richard, for me, 
it's Christmas. We are getting together with family to celebrate Christmas because said family does not believe we will be able to get together in December due to the virus and our inability to celebrate indoors for several hours at a time. So they've decided while we can still take advantage of being outdoors, we should celebrate the holidays now. Also, Several of us in the family have had birthdays in the last few weeks, so for people like me, we're celebrating our own personal Christmas, which all means Merry Christmas to me, Richard. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, any last word? (laughs) Any last words? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any grant money. We don't accept any commercial. You know, we don't have any commercials on our show. And we don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff agrees that the big coin should drop. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Judith Levine on inequality and reproduction. If you have a guest or topic suggestion, send them to us at chuck at thisishell.com. If you do, we'll likely read your suggestion on air if we end up having your recommended guest on the show. Well, thank you during the interview. We got an email from Edson last night. Edson writes, Dear Chuck, been a Patreon subscriber for two or three years. Don't think I've missed a podcast since. This is how it gives me comfort knowing I'm not the only person in this effing hellscape that thinks this is hell. Anyway, I just finished reading an interesting book by Catherine Page Harden called The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, which is pretty frightening title. I think it would be a great book to discuss with the author because she is trying to make the case that looking at people's DNA can be done in a way that is non-eugenicist. I was partially convinced by her obvious expertise of genetics and what we know about how it affects life outcomes. The part where I'm not fully convinced about is that this information just doesn't seem likely to ever be used by those with power to advance what she advocates for, equity increasing policies. Thanks for all you do. Ciao for now, Edson. Thanks for the suggestion, Edson, uh, but I got to admit that the title kind of freaks me out. While the author may not be a eugenicist, it's hard not to be concerned over a book on DNA and a genetic lottery, flirting with the idea at the very least. However, this is from the uh, Princeton University Press website, which says uh, this about the book. In the genetic lottery, clinical psychologist Catherine Page Harden introduces readers to the latest genetic science, dismantling dangerous ideas about racial superiority and challenging us to grapple with what equality really means in a world where people are born different. Weaving together personal stories with scientific evidence, Harden shows why our refusal to recognize the power of DNA perpetuates the myth of meritocracy and argues that we must acknowledge the role of genetic luck if we are ever to create a fair society. Reclaiming genetic science from the legacy of eugenics, this groundbreaking book offers a bold new vision of society where everyone thrives regardless of how one fares in the genetic lottery. And now I am cautiously curious about Hardin's genetic lottery. One thing 
is it's not one thing that's not going for it however is it's definitely a topic I'm sorry one thing it does have going for it however is it's definitely a topic nobody is discussing and we love covering what nobody else is here on this is house so thanks again Edson also a week ago I asked you all for your advice on how to become unexhausted not on how to relax which I am very good at uh, doing already but how to get over this feeling that I am constantly worn out or down or whatever direction you want to choose I'm just worn and I really want this stupefying sensation that I've had for months to go away so we shared some of your advice advice on Monday's show to begin this week and to sum up so far you have suggested I become unexhausted by day drinking through dopamine another listener wrote how his father would get two B12 injections weekly or what his father called businessman's speed to overcome <laughs> exhaustion. And it all, if all else fails, yet another one of you recommended using a product that is positioned to be part of a likely multi-level marketing scheme. Teresita, who su- suggested day drinking and dopamine, among other things, followed up on her previous email. She writes, thumbs up on B12, but you need to absorb it, despite the fact you can get lots of it from many food sources, such as beer. The darker the beer, the better. Getting B12 via injections bypasses the stomach and works short-term wonders if you can afford it. So here is what else might help, especially if you feel sleepy and heavy after eating. Take some Betaine HCL. HCL aids in the absorption of that easy-to-find B12, and best of all, it's a cheap supplement. Take it with your meal or soon after if you feel like you are dragging or you ate too much. But again, Mr. Chicago, I bet you need D3. I would bet a lot on the uh, on that because anywhere it's winter that long, unless you eat fish every day, you ain't getting D3 from the sun. Bueno, Teresita. So, Teresita, I think you are absolutely correct about the sunlight and my need for vitamin D, but I looked up betaine HCL, and here's what I found. Granted, this is at WebMD. Betaine hydrochloride has an interesting history. Betaine hydrochloride used to be an over-the-counter product as a stomach acidifier and digestive aid, but a federal law that went into effect in 1993 banned betaine HCL from use in OTC products because there wasn't enough evidence to classify it generally recognized as safe or effective. Betaine HCL is now available as a dietary supplement whose purity and strength can vary. Promoters still claim that some health conditions are due to inadequate stomach acid, but this claim has not been proven. Even if it were true, betaine HCL wouldn't help. It only delivers HCL or hydrochloric acid, but does not itself alter stomach acidity. That said, betaine HCL is also used to treat abnormally low levels of potassium, hay fever, tired blood or anemia, asthma, hardening of the arteries, yeast infections, diarrhea, food allergies, gallstones, inner ear infections, rheumatoid arthritis, and thyroid disorders. It is also used to protect the liver. And with Teresita suggesting day drinking and now dark beer for its B12, I just might need betaine HCL to protect my liver. And who knows, maybe the reason I'm exhausted all the time is I have tired blood. If you have any guest or topic suggestions or want to help me figure out how to become unexhausted, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to all of you for your suggestions and recommendations and advice. Coming up, choice is an illusion and should not be the basis for a reproductive rights movement. Not only will Richard have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, we will also be telling you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff will be delivering the moment of truth. This week, Jeff agrees that the big coin should drop, and we'll find out who's going to be on the show next week. 
Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell. It turns out Roe v. Wade is not the end-all and be-all of protecting a woman's reproductive rights. In fact, it turns out that the legal decision's focus on privacy opens the door to government regulation, which makes the decision vulnerable to anti-abortionists who want to restrict women's access to health care related to reproduction. As for a reproductive rights movement based around the idea of choice, well, choice obscures all the structural challenges that make it so not everyone has a choice or the same choices. Here to help us have a much better understanding of the new Texas anti-abortion law and a possible path toward a revived reproductive rights movement, returning to This Is Held journalist author and essayist Judith Levine wrote the Boston Review article Abortion is a Public Good The Right to Reproductive Health and Agency is a Compelling State Interest Welcome back to This is Hell, Judith Thank you for having me It's great to have you back on the show Uh, Judith was on back in 2017 and following our conversation with her today go over to our website thisishell.com search on her last name and find our conversation with her about her N plus one article Descent into liberalism, which was fascinating, fascinating reading. And you can, again, find out more about Judith at her website, judithlevine.com. So you quote Texas's SB8, the state's near total abortion ban, which you point out went into effect on September 1st when the Supreme Court declined to enjoin it. SB8 reads, Texas has compelling interests from the outset of a woman's pregnancy and protecting the health of the woman and the life of the unborn child. And you add that on October 7th, in response to an emergency request from the U.S., the Department of Justice, a federal judge, blocked the law. And you cite that judge saying other courts may find a way to avoid the same conclusion. But you argue whatever the Supreme Court of the United States does, the anti-abortion movement will not be stopped. It will carry on as before, powered by the same morally and politically muscular message that SBA communicates. The government cares about what happens to women's bodies. And when Texas deputizes the masses to force its ban through civil lawsuits, it is not just slithering out of judicial scrutiny, nor is it simply doing what red states do, privatize the government. SB8 tells the world that pregnancy and birth are not only the state's business, they're everybody's business. So, Judith, this just made me think of a few things. I remember stories about uh, people living in the police state of the Soviet Union, and they would would never know who was a spy for the state or who wasn't. The way it was portrayed in the U.S. was this dystopian Soviet communism. In 2016, BBC runs a report that says that news that Iran has deployed thousands of undercover agents to enforce rules on dress has cast the spotlight on an institution that is a major feature of daily life in several Muslim-majority countries. And then here in the United States, we have this colonial history of the so-called good wife who would supposedly uphold Puritan law. So, Judith, after that very long introduction with SB8 in Texas, how would you describe the relationship all Texas residents now have with each other? Is everyone a spy, morality police, or overseers of a sort of puritanical law? Well, potentially they are. And I would also interject that, excuse me, after the, um, hold on a minute, after the, this, that judge blocked the law and joined the law two or three days later. It went to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth District, rather, of Texas, which is a much more conservative court, and they reinstated the law. So SB 8 is back in business. Um, so it was uh, blocked for two days, maybe three days. Um, so what does it do? Yes it potentially makes every single person, not only in the state of Texas, in fact, 
any place because the two people who have sued people who have abetted a woman having an abortion, that could be a provider, that could be a friend who lends money, that could be an Uber driver who takes her to the clinic. Uh, two people who uh, brought suit were not living in Texas. So uh, it, it, it brings the entire United States of America and who knows, maybe the world into policing uh, what women do with their bodies. So what happens to a society when everybody is a potential spy or vigilante, not just within your state or within your city or county, anybody online, anywhere? What what happens to a society when we have that kind of adversarial or overseer uh, relationship with each other? Uh, well, one thing is that citizens join the corporation and the government in watching each other. Um, so... Maybe it's more democratic that we get to be cops. All of us get to be cops in addition to, you know, the, the NSA and, and, uh, and Facebook. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it certainly um, makes everybody even more suspicious of one another than we already are, you know, thanks to the Trump years and, and the polarization in general, people are, suspicious of each other and and uh one of the one of the pernicious things about this law is that it pretends that the state is not enforcing anything i mean the law is written by the state legislature of texas um it's not something that was arrived at democratically in fact um the the majority of texans like the majority of americans support a woman's right to uh to end a pregnancy. So in Texas, that majority is a lot smaller than it is in other places. It's a really, really conservative state, a very Christian state. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the legislature of Texas does not represent the people in this regard. Uh, and with gerrymandering, it's going to represent the people even less. So, um, so yeah, so do we want to be not only politically in opposition to each other, which I would argue is not a bad thing. Politics is something that's necessary and good. But do we want to be interfering with each other's very, very uh, individual bodily decisions? Um, you named before you talked about uh, other police states. Uh, you could add the Stasi and, you know, in East Germany, you could certainly add, you know, fascist states such as uh, the Nazis. Um, but the United States has its own history of uh, deputizing citizens to watch over the bodies of other people. And that's in the slave patrols, which began in the 18th century. They began as soon as there was slavery. Um, and that was when citizens were, there were vigilantes, kind of freelance slave catchers, but also states uh, allowed uh, and encouraged and local governments encouraged individual white people to go out and uh, capture enslaved people who might have run away or even who might have been just as the Texas law put it, um, what was it, uh, just sort of hanging around, I forget the term that they used, um, that it, without the permission of the of the enslavers. Um, in fact, in the North, in, there's a really interesting book about this kidnappers club in New York City, um, 
where people would go around and just, uh, you know, commandeer even freeborn slaves and children, freeborn African-Americans and children. Uh, that's what the, the movie 10, 12 Years a Slave was about, where a freeborn man was just, uh, you know, kidnapped and, and uh, sold into slavery. So uh, Texas, even before the Texas Rangers, Texas uh, deputized these bands of these patrols to, uh, to go around and look for um, black people who were, you know, uh, were, were not, were out without permission. And they were also allowed to um, inflict punishment on those people with the lash right there and then. Yeah, and in your writing, you uh, the phrase that you were looking for was strolling about. That was that's right, that strolling you, about. So, you strolling just, about. so does does that history does that create a, a fertile environment for vigilante law to be used against those seeking an abortion? And, and is that the history? Is that history why SB eight is written the way it is? Is there simply a culture of vigilantism in Texas that now might have an impact on the rest of the United States? Well, let me first say. Um, uh, women of color have objected to, people of color have, have objected to um, comparing abortion and the, and the lack of abortion rights to slavery. And that's a really well taken um, criticism. Not being able to have an abortion is not the same as being in bondage and being able to have an abortion is not the same as being, as freeing oneself from bondage. Um, but that said, um, yes, we have a history uh, in which, uh, you know, you certainly can see the history of these slave patrols as uh, presaging the carceral state that we have today. In fact, historians, some historians uh, look at those, those slave patrols as the original United States police departments. So if police departments are racist today, that they have a long history of being racist. Um, so it's not just the state of Texas, you know, that has this <clears throat> way of thinking that um, number one, people need to be policed to live correctly. That's the first thing that you, that we couldn't make our decisions ourselves or that communities couldn't make decisions, couldn't come to, um, you know, democratic agreements as to what is a good way to live. Um, and also the idea that protecting the fetus means punishing the woman. That's a really carceral sort of adversarial way that we think about justice. It's the way that the courts are set up. You're on one side or the other. <clears throat> you're the defendant or you're the perpetrator. And you can't be for both. You know, it's not possible that, say, a person who does a violent crime might him or herself have been the victim of violence. That's often really the case. So in this case, you look at the fetus, the fetus is this in, innocent victim, and the person carrying the fetus is somehow the antagonist or the torturer or, you know, of the kill or the, the murderer of the fetus. So you'd have to, you know, you have to sacrifice the mother in order to save the fetus. Um, it is true that when you have an abortion, you end a potential life, but most people have an abortion uh, when the fetus wouldn't be able to live on its own anyway. And most people have an, have an abortion six weeks, which is when this, this law uh, cuts off the ability to have abortion. Um, 
at six weeks, a fetus is not even called a fetus. It's just an embryo. So it's, it's not even, you know, it's a zygote, I think is what they call it. It's not even a fetus. And when they talk about um, cardiac, when, the, the law says that when cardiac activity can be detected, that's when the person can't have an abortion. Um, there is a sort of a, a beating that can be uh, detected, but there is no organized heart uh, at, at that point um, in, in, in gestation. So there's no real heart. It's not really a fetus. Uh, it's potential life as much as, you know, your sperm is potential life. And you also point out that uh, feminists fight for pregnant people's and fetuses' health, too, for universal, affordable, accessible re reproductive health care. But we have not boldly made an opposite, equally powerful case. The right and ability to terminate a pregnancy safely and without cost, bias, or stigma as a guarantor, if not the only one, of the existential equality and human flourishing of all uterus-bearing people. How do laws concerning reproductive rights lead to inequality for women of all forms, not just in healthcare? Because I think that's a really important point to make, how this affects inequality in general for women. So how do laws concerning reproductive rights lead to inequality for women? The ability to do with your body what you want to do with your body, which is called bodily autonomy. It's the reason the right to bodily autonomy is the right to not be enslaved, the right to not be tortured, the right, the right to not be forced to do labor that, you know, against your will or for no pay. Um, the, the ability, so that's number one, that's a, a human right, bodily autonomy, a universal human right. Um, but for a person who has a uterus, Simply having a uterus and therefore having the potential to reproduce should not put a person in a position of not being able to make decisions about her life, not being able to make a decision whether she wants to have a family, whether she wants to live here or live there, whether she wants to try to earn a lot of money or not earn a lot of money, you know, whether she wants to take drugs, whether she wants to, you know, be a downhill, you know, slalom skier where she's risking her life, you know, with her, with her everyday, you know, uh, recreation. Um, the, the ability to decide whether and when to have children affects absolutely everything about the life of a person who has a uterus. If you cannot do that, you are not the existential equal of people who don't have uteruses. Now this is true, like people recognize this in a very daily way. Like, you know, the woman gets pregnant, the man doesn't get pregnant. So who has to deal with it? The woman has to deal with it. This is just, you know, this is, this is just reality. So then how do we make people equal? You, uh, you have laws and protections and you, don't have laws that you know that that infringe on 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 the ability to be to be equal you have policies and institutions and practices that allow every person in everybody in every body to be able to have as full a life as they can 
as equally as they can with everyone else. So that's just not, not just the difference between people who have uteruses and people who don't have uteruses. This is the difference between people who um, are maybe transgender or not transgender. This is the difference between people who have disabilities, who don't have disabilities, who are aged, who are young, who are children, who are adults. You know, all of these things, we all live in a body. And what can we do as a society to um, encourage and allow and promote the, the greatest possible flourishing for every single person in every single body? And once you start to infringe on that ability, um, then, then you start to uh, increase disability, uh, increase inequality, not just allow it, but increase it. The early abortion rights movement uh, wanted repeal of abortion laws, wanted no abortion laws, nothing that regulated abortion any more than any other medical procedure might be regulated. But the thing that the states, the anti-abortion states have done is they've imposed all kinds of gratuitous regulations, particularly on abortion providers. So they have to have admitting, uh, admitting uh, privileges at a local hospital. They have to have the corridors a certain you know, width. They have to, I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of these these laws that are, are made just particularly for abortion providers and their express purpose is to make it hard for abortion, abortion providers to be able to, uh, to afford to, you know, to, to practice. And the result has been in more than 80% of counties in the United States, there are no abortion providers. So is legalization the wrong path forward, or even in the past, was it the wrong path for reproductive rights? Should have, instead of legalization, should have been more focused on decriminalization? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, a sim there's a similar movement among uh, sex workers that legalization always comes with regulation. Uh, so what you want to have is as few laws as possible. I mean, I think that's true of pretty much all victimless personal conduct, we should have as few laws as possible. You know, in that sense, I'm kind of a libertarian. Um, so, so that sex workers are fighting often for decriminalization and not for legalization, because in past history, what legalization has meant is that the police have overseen, you know, the conduct of, of, of um, women who or people who, who do sex work, and they've you know, they've had to register and all kinds of other things and submit to various medical, you know, tests and all the rest of it. So, uh, so yes, decriminalization, the repeal of all abortion laws would be the optimal thing. And you write that states have a compelling interest, a profound obligation to defend the right to abortion. Abortion is a public good. So this is probably the easiest question I had to write this week. How is abortion a public good? Abortion is a public good um, because in order for us all to have happy, healthy lives, um, I mean, I, I believe that if everyone, you know, everyone has rights, if everyone has justice, then other people also, uh, you know, other people also benefit from that. Now, as you know, as an anti-capitalist, power is... Uh, a limited, quant a limited 
commodity. And when some people have it, other people lose it. Uh, but in terms of kind of personal life, sexual life, um, what you do sexually, unless it's rape, is not going to harm me. So everybody who was worried that gay marriage was going to, you know, somehow destroy straight marriage, they turned out to be wrong about that. So uh, the greatest good, I'm, you know, Adam Smith, like a lot of, of the kind of, you know, cap, even capitalist economists argued that uh, the, that the, the greatest good for individuals will redound to, to, to everybody. So um, when you look, for instance, even I mean, there's, there's research all over the world that when people, women and girls are able to um, control their reproductive lives, they can get more education. Smaller families mean that children can be cared for better and they have better, people have better health. Uh, people can uh, contribute to the workforce. They can therefore make more money. They can, can, they can participate in politics. They can be part of the community. They can do volunteer work so that, um, that the freedoms of women are correlated all over the world with societies that have more democracy, that have more peace, that have less authoritarianism. And those, conversely, those uh, societies that have more authoritarianism, more misogyny, more sexual inequality are also the ones that have the most war, that are most aggressive toward, their, toward other countries and toward minorities within their own countries. And so, um, women's equality or the equality of people who have uteruses, the equality of people of sexual minorities, uh, the equality of people with disabilities, all of those things are correlated with more stable societies, more democratic societies, and more uh, egalitarian and prosperous societies. Abortion rights are uh, good for everybody, no matter if you have a uterus or not. And I think that's a really important thing to remind everybody. You ask, why haven't we linked abortion to the Commonwealth? And then you argue that the answer lies in Roe v. Wade and in a strategy, strategy, strategy uh, conceived and led by a liberal, largely white advocacy community that depends on Roe to protect abortion and therefore makes the defense of Roe its premier organizing goal. To elevate Roe in this way is to accept a compromise as the sine qua non that is an essential thing that is absolutely necessary of a movement, reform of abortion laws rather than their total repeal. Is Roe v. Wade a warning about the shortcomings of reform and the need for abolition? Yes, I, I think it is. Um, you know, the tension between reform and radical change is always one for every social justice movement. You know, you want to improve people's lives today in small ways. For instance, people who are incarcerated, you know, you want there to be better food, let's say, in prison. What you really want is there to be no prisons. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, the argument against reforms is that it legitimates the in institution. So if you have reforms of abortion and, and regulation of abortion, you're you're legitimizing the state's uh, right to to interfere in any way. At the same time, we do have Roe now. I don't want to lose it because it's all we've got standing between us and, you know, the abyss. Uh, but we have, you know, in effect, we have lost it because 
most people, most women in this country live in places where they can't get abortions. So uh, it, it, it's not really a right. I, I do want to interject here for a moment and, and, and make a distinction between abortion rights and abortion justice. Okay. Um, abortion justice or reproductive justice, reproductive justice was an idea that was coined in 1994 by a group of 12 women of color um, right before a big uh, conference, women's Con international women's conference on population. Um, what they, they looked around and they saw that, that a movement that was mostly led by white middle-class women was not going to be able to, to stand up for their, the needs and rights of women of color, of poor women, um, of women in the global South. And so they started, they, they began, thought of this idea, reproductive justice. Reproductive justice is the intersection of reproductive rights and justice. And what they meant by that is not only the right to have a child or not to have a child, but the right to have a child in an environment that's healthy, um, one in which there's no violence, uh, So and, and also access to healthcare. So rather than choice, they talk about access. That is, uh, everybody has healthcare that they can that they can get because if you can't access it then you have no choice right so uh choice itself is a kind of privilege so access rather than choice and justice meaning um you know all of the things that we associate with justice justice is something that's social it's between people among people and it's not individual the way rights are rights are important Human rights are important, but social justice is also important. And you point out that a right resting on Roe dies with the death of Roe. In the short term, yeah. this will be a catastrophe in states like Mississippi, Oklahoma, Texas, and dozens of others. It already is one. But paradoxically, losing Roe might force us to rebuild a movement, one based on the assertion of reproductive rights and sexual freedom nested within a vision of broad social justice. And so you were just saying that you don't want to lose Roe, but do we need to lose Roe v. Wade as uh, made legal? Uh, you know, reproductive rights is made legal under Roe v. Wade in order to finally have reproductive rights for all. You know, um, we have laws, we have, or this is, you know, Roe v. Wade is a, a Supreme Court ruling, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, which uh, established that uh, separate but uneven, separate uh, education racially segregated education is not equal. Um, we now have more racial segregation in our schools than we had in 1954 when uh, Brown was, was, was uh, ruled. So, um, so you have these rulings and they're not necessarily, uh, we don't necessarily practice, you know, even what, even, even those rulings that, you know, that, that establish principles that that we that we endorse, you know, the the 13th Amendment, the amendment that is supposed to outlaw involuntary servitude and slavery has this carve out that except you, you everybody has liberty from involuntary servitude, except if they have committed a crime, which opens up, you know, to slave labor inside of prisons. Um, so we don't, you know, row. I don't think we need to have Roe, to, to lose Roe in order to make a more radical movement and to expand reproductive justice. 
um, as I said before, we practically have lost it anyway. Uh, if it's overturned, uh, you know, we don't, you don't need to lose it in order to, to make a more, a, a more radical movement. What we do need to do, though, is to get away from the very narrow terms of Roe. So the narrow terms of Roe include the right to privacy. The right to privacy is, uh, you know, that the police can't, you know, barge into your bedroom. This is the Fourth Amendment, too. The right to privacy, you can't, um, you know, the, the involuntary search and seizure without a, you know, without a, a, a um, without the judge allowing, you know, you can't, there's a lot of things that, uh, that privacy comes from. Privacy is, is a right. The Ninth Amendment uh, is an interesting one in the Constitution. What it says is that just because we haven't enumerated a particular right in the Constitution doesn't mean it can be denied to, to people. So what it says is that there are other rights that maybe we didn't think of when we wrote this document, but they, they emanate from, they're in a penumbra uh, of, uh, you know, a sort of aura of the other rights. So for instance, Fourth Amendment uh, against search and seizure, that is a privacy right. Um, but privacy is a kind of weak right too. Uh, there's a lot of exceptions to when the police can barge into your apartment or, you know, if you're on the sex offender registry, they can just follow your every move. You know, uh, they can put an ankle bracelet on you if you're a proly. So there's a lot of privacy rights that are, you know, the privacy right is weak. I, I named a couple of um, a couple of rulings around privacy that really allowed um, uh Coercion. For instance, there was a case in 1917 about uh, compulsory vaccination, and the court ruled that compulsory vaccination in the interest of the public health was permissible, that it overrode the right you know, to individual privacy. Another one uh, in 1927, really infamous uh, decision about, which, about eugenics. There was a woman who was institutionalized in a mental institution. The state of Virginia wanted to sterilize her. The case went to the Supreme Court and the great esteemed Oliver Wendell Holmes said that she should be sterilized because she was the child of a, quote, feeble-minded mother and she had had a, quote, feeble-minded child. And he said, three generations of imbeciles is enough. So privacy didn't save that woman. Uh, privacy, for all you anti-vaxxers out there, uh, doesn't, doesn't protect you either. Compulsory vaccination is constitutional. Um, so privacy itself is a weak right. And privacy also, I argue, is, uh, it might even be non-existent at this point. You know. Every single thing you do online is tracked by a lot of different institutions and corporations. Um, I don't think people really care that much about privacy anymore. You know, people who have a webcam in their shower want publicity. <laughs> you know, they don't want <laughs> privacy. You know, so people are not. And also, I think young people don't believe that they can have a life. You know, if you had privacy, you just can't have a life. You know, the, the number of I think the percentage of people statistically who read the terms and conditions of any, you know, the privacy terms and conditions of any, any contract you make online is zero. So people don't really care about it. They just know it's not possible. So, and the other thing is that poor people and people of color 
have historically been surveilled by state institutions, uh, state agencies that are purportedly protecting their children. You know, that there's surveillance and policing and uh, over-policing in communities of color. So people are being watched all the time, no matter what they do. So there isn't, you know, if there's anything called privacy, either you're really, really rich and you have a big gate around your life, or you're, you know, living off the grid on the top of a mountain and, you know, you don't go online and you don't have a mobile phone, you know, so almost no one has privacy to begin with. So that's itself, like to be trying to prov- to protect privacy, I think is just the wrong direction. Then the next thing is from privacy flows this idea of choice. I'm an individual, I can do what I want. Um, so I'm gonna choose to have an abortion or not choose to have an abortion. And as we said before, if there's not access to healthcare, for instance, you can't choose to have an abortion anyway. So these are, you know, and then the, the third thing about Roe is that it gave a lot of uh, influence to doctors the whole thing was doctors were very important in the decision of Roe. They came to Roe uh, with with doc, with uh, testimony about all of the horrible, you know, injuries and deaths that they'd seen from illegal abortions. But they still wanted a hand in in it. So the ruling says this is a decision between a woman and her doctor. Um, why should it be between a woman and her doctor? Why shouldn't it just be a, be a woman? You know, like, well, who's the doctor? <laughs> Nobody even has a doctor anymore. You know, you have a, a primary care physician who talks to you for three minutes, if you even have that. So, so these are all, it's a really a narrow ruling that is protecting this massive existential question. Do I get to use my body the way I want to use it without anybody interfering? Uh, so we could make the whole thing a lot more radical without this is a long, 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 long way of saying, no, we don't have to lose Roe to make it more radical. We may end up losing Roe anyway, but it's not that's not the end of the world is really what my point was. You know, that if we lose Roe, we can keep going. We can keep fighting for this because we're going to have to fight for it. The same number of abortions take place in places where abortions are illegal as where they are legal. So women still have abortions. They just have unsafe abortions. So on, on privacy, uh, you write the neoliberal myth that your fate is your choice and your troubles are your fault, obscures history, economics, and social reality. It discourages collective action and mobilizes shame. Together, privacy and shame cloak harm perpetrated by those with power, from sexual harassment in the workplace to child sexual abuse at home. Meanwhile, communities whose facial features are stored in police files and whose families are under constant surveillance by protective agencies have no illusion that their privacy ever existed. So how can inequality of privacy be overcome? Would ending neoliberalism end inequality in privacy? Um, you know, neoliberalism is the idea that the market, you know, and, you know, that that unfettered markets will solve all problems. And as we know, markets are not egalitarian. Uh, the whole structure of capitalism is that most people have to lose in order for a few people to win. So, uh, so the idea that, you know, we as a society don't have any responsibility for each other, 
if you have a really, really bad wage, for instance, if you're making minimum wage and you can't afford an apartment or a you know, place to live for your kids, then that must be your fault. Uh, because after all, you have all of the opportunities of the market. Um, so, you know, do would getting rid of neoliberalism allow for real right, real reproductive freedom? Is that what you're asking me? Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you are uh, in the up at the top of the hour. You talked about you know capitalism being the primary um, source of inequality around reproductive issues. And I don't think that's all it is because, you know, in communist countries and fascist countries and countries that don't have capitalism and countries, you know, with all kinds of uh, economic systems, you still have uh, control of women's bodies. I mean, that this happened, this was happening way before capitalism existed. So uh, capitalism is not great for sexual equality, but it's not the only cause of sexual inequality, nor is capitalism the primary motive for a lot of people who want to uh, curtail women's rights to do with their body what they want to do. And I think anti-abortion people really do believe that abortion is murder. That is a legitimate moral position. Uh, I don't agree with it. I don't you know, I don't want them imposing their morality on me, but it's not necessarily to do with abortion and with uh, capitalism. In fact, there is a sort of small feminist socialist anti-abortion movement. You know, the idea that um, if we had, there, there's an argument that if we had a real um, economically uh, and socially egalitarian society where we had childcare and good health care and housing for everybody, then nobody would have abortions. That's the argument. But the fact is people have abortions because they don't want to have a kid. It has nothing to do with how much money they have or, you know, a lot of people don't have a kid because they can't afford it, but people also don't have a kid because they don't want a kid. Um, so capitalism even if we got rid of capitalism, we still have to protect people's bodily autonomy. You know, it, it, it's, it's not going to, that, that won't solve it. It'll solve a lot of other things, but it won't solve this. And that's a really good point. You also write that just as communities can be safe, safer without police, pregnancy and birth can be healthier and less stressful without doctors. But the rejection of medical paternalism, whether that's making an exception for a Texan abortion patient after six weeks or sterilizing inmates in a California prison, does not exempt government from its obligations to provide universal, accessible, high-quality health care, along with decent housing, a clean environment, and social and economic supports for families. Choice is a neoliberal fiction. If you can't get it, you can't choose it. So under neoliberalism, does the government have an obligation to provide universal, accessible, high-quality health care? Has the government, via neoliberalism, abdicated that responsibility? And is a government that abdicates that responsibility sustainable? Well, a government, yes, the government, a neoliberal government privatizes everything, and it does abdicate the responsibility of the state to look after its, uh, you know, look after its people. I mean, we have social democracies where, uh, you know, you have a little bit of capitalism. It's, it's like, you know, places that have decent health care and child care, they have some capitalism. It doesn't, these two things are not completely mutually exclusive. But the, the, the ideology of neoliberal 
ism itself is one that says that we don't need the government to do things. The government shouldn't do things that the market will, you know, will, will solve all problems. Well, it doesn't, you know, for-profit healthcare does not, you know, we all know for-profit healthcare does not deliver healthcare to people, you know, in an accessible, affordable way. Doesn't work. So, um, the government, you know, I think libertarians tend to, there tends to be like an idea that the government should do nothing or the government should do everything. You know, the government should do certain things. And probably, and frankly, I think certain things should be private. Like, I don't want to pay for basketball arenas, for instance. That should be a private enterprise. So uh, the government has many, the government meaning the people, meaning taxpayers, meaning and that means equitable taxation uh, in order to have a well-functioning society. And morally, it, it has an obligation to, uh, you know, to, to, to make sure that everyone has health care. So hands off my body doesn't mean the government has no obligation to my health. You know, and that also includes an environment that's clean you know, and, and to, to climate change. Um, you know, if we want to keep children, if, if, if the right wants to keep children, you know, safe and living in the future, they should be screaming about climate change because our children are going to be broiling up. So, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy, of course. Uh, and that's it's kind of true of any single issue. You know, if you're only about stopping abortions and then you don't think about what happens to the child after it's born, you're leaving out a lot of, I think you're leaving out even a lot of what you believe in, you know, that you believe in a good life for children. Well, how's that going to happen? You know, has to, we have to end climate change. We have to have end inequality. We have to end, you know, rapacious capitalism. So, um, so, you know, each one of these things, you can't, you know, these things all intersect, right? You know, I, uh, I think Audrey Lodge said, Lord said, you can't have single issue politics because we don't live single issue lives. Um, and that's true for, you know, what you do with your body. But bodily autonomy is such a basic bottom line thing that I think it precedes all of this, uh, you know, because all of these bad systems allow for bodily autonomy to be infringed, you know, to be violated. But there, there's no, I can't think of any human right that's more basic than that one. You don't get to do to my body something that I don't want. You can't torture me. You can't you know, enslave me. You can't make me have a baby. You were mentioning climate change, and you also point out the impact of poverty on the mother and the fetus, as well as racism on the mother and the fetus when they are people of color. Uh, does poverty and racism... Does, do those threaten fetuses more than abortion does? Because I, I'm wondering why the anti-abortion movement isn't focusing on being anti-poverty, anti-racism. As you pointed out, you know, if you're really concerned about the children being more focused on climate change. Absolutely. Racism and poverty have a much, much higher um, negative effect on, on mothers and, ch and, and fetuses and children than abortion does. Abortion is a very, very safe procedure. And if you do it early enough, it's it's a very very simple procedure and a quick procedure. Um, I know because I've had abortions, uh, but women of color, 
especially African-American women, have much higher rates of, uh, of infant and maternal mortality. This includes uh, African-American women who are middle class and educated. Um, much, much higher rates of miscarriage, of uh, low weight birth, low birth weight babies. Um, all of those have to do with, uh, they have to do with lack of access to good prenatal care and, uh, and child care, you know, child health care. But they also have to do with this generations of history of oppression and, and daily life stress of racism. And you see this also with indigenous peoples, with Native Americans, that there is the stress um, and the harms are passed on generation to generation. And that's why you can have, you know, a black woman who has a PhD and lives in a big house and, and her husband is a, you know, stockbroker and she still has a low birth weight baby. When you look at, you know, and also doctors don't take black patients as seriously. They don't, they under medicate them for pain. Uh, you know, they, 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 you know, they, they under medicate them from pain. They don't listen to, you know, if they say that something is wrong, they don't listen to them. They don't listen to their symptoms. And so people get much worse uh, care than, than, than white people do. So all of those things are much, 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 much more, dangerous to the health of mothers and babies. And you're right that not uh, surprisingly, the targets of the inner uterine, intrauterine war on drugs are overwhelmingly black, brown, and poor. Many are among the most marginalized. SB8 will also disproportionately affect Texans of color who make up two-thirds of the state's abortion patients. What would be the impact of the end of the war on drugs on parental rights of black, brown, and poor parents? Well, this is a really important thing. There are many, many women uh, who use drugs, for instance, who are marginalized in other ways, who are poor or in bad health, who are being prosecuted for those very things. So if they have a miscarriage or if they have an abortion, um, they're held in captivity. They're made to, to undergo cesarean sections that they don't need. Um, and this is the war on drugs that has now invaded women's uteruses. The war on drugs is not has not only destroyed many, many countries and, and wasted billions and billions of dollars and led to, you know, gang warfare all over the world and, and all sorts of really awful things, you know, distorts economies, but it hurts individual pregnant people. Um, the war on drugs is just a pernicious, horrible thing that we should just totally get rid of. And not, not only that, it's landed millions of people in prison uh, who have not doing, done anything wrong. So, um, yeah, so that would be another thing. Um, but, you know, we see the ways that racism, that white supremacy, that economic inequality compounds um, this effort to control women's bodies, to control women's sexuality. And the last thing I will say, because I see the hours up, is that um, is that abortion is about sex. The way you get an unwanted baby, an unwanted pregnancy, is by heterosexual intercourse. That's the only way it works. <laughs> There's no other way. And yet the discourse of abortion has completely erased sex from the picture. Anybody who lived before abortion was legal knows the terror 
that was involved in, you know, thinking, oh, shit, I didn't take my pill yesterday. I didn't put in my diaphragm. I, you know, that terror, um, what it did, you know, people had to get married. There was shotgun weddings, all this kind of stuff. It was really bad for sex and the ability to contracept, number one, and to have an, an accessible, safe medical abortion, number two, really improves sex. And that is a very important thing. That's another right that people have is a right to pleasure. It's a public good, I, I contend. And that's another reason that we really need to support abortion is for sexual freedom and for sexual pleasure. And the pursuit of happiness, as talked the about pursuit in the of happiness. Declaration is, of Independence. It uh, is. We have been speaking with Judith Levine, who wrote the Boston Review article, Abortion is a Public Good. The Right to Reproductive Health and Agency is a Compelling State Interest. You can follow Judith on Twitter, at Judith Levine. You can find out more about her at her website, judithlevine.com. Her most recent book is The Feminist and the Sex Offender. Confronting Sexual Harm, Ending State Violence, which she co-authored with Erica R. Miners. One last question for you, Judith, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, we ask the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Judith, is the anti-abortion movement in any way a class war on the poor? No. I don't think it is. Its effect is a class war on the poor, but I don't think that the movement itself is a class war on the poor. That's not its intent. That's not its intent. That's one of its effects. Which is very important. The outcomes, even though they're not, as you point out in your writing, uh, the intent of something may not be uh, what the outcome ends up being. Well, Judith, I really appreciate you being back on the show. People should check out our earlier conversation with you back in 2017. Go to our website, thisishell.com, and search on the last name Levine. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is an exceptional, exceptional article, and I really appreciate you being back on the show. Thanks for having me. Take Take care. care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is Hell of That Conversation with Judith Levine on the reasons behind the slow death of Roe v. Wade made you mad or sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held, or it made you feel more educated or, or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Richard, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering. This week's question from hell is any last words? And we have a few answers. Sweet. (laughs) Joel G answers Rosebud. (laughs) That is pretty good. (laughs) Nice slide. (laughs) Our Jeffrey answers eat me. That's classy. Garrett S. His answer for any last words is pee pee poo poo. (laughs) I see. Latin. (laughs) Jeff C. answers your bullets can't hurt me. Hell is eternal and this is hell. (laughs) Sweet. Aaron B. His answer is I will rise from death hungry for the flesh of the living. My appetite will be insatiable. (laughs) 
Yikes. <laughs> He's going to turn into a zombie. Yikes. So. Mike C. answers, I regret that I have but one Patreon sub sub subscription to give to This Is Hell. Oh, there you go. You can do it under another name. Keep doing it over and over again. <laughs> Steal your friend's credit card. Edison K., his answer is, no words, just horrid cackling. <laughs> And I think that's it for this moment. You can Until, leave uh, later. Oh uh, yes, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can send it to us via Twitter. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff agrees that the big coin should drop. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following Jeff. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every week and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. You'll also get subvertising stickers and a $5 discount on each and every piece of our merchandise. The Patreon podcast usually drops on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. Chicago time. However, this week we're streaming live tomorrow morning, Thursday morning at the same time, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Savings Time, because Friday morning I will be on the road to Christmas in October on Patreon this week. Like I said, this week's Patreon podcast is happening tomorrow, Thursday, October 14th, which is the 34th anniversary of being in unwedded bliss with my girlfriend. That's right, 34 years of mostly monogamous commitment to one another. Hey, look, for the first few years, we weren't sure how this thing was going to work out. We'll, we'll be celebrated tomorrow. So while we're celebrating, I will tell you how you too can have a successful non-marriage and my thoughts on the upside and downside of not being married. We'll also be featuring a classic interview from our archives featuring a guest who was on the show this week, and that guest is Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies. He was on Tuesday's show to discuss his new paper that he co-authored on the power of dynastic family wealth in the United States and how that power undermines democracy. Chuck has been appearing on This Is Hell since 2006, and when digging through our archives, I found a conversation from 2009 on a topic that everyone's been talking about lately, which is infrastructure and how we can pay for it. Turns out Chuck knew how to pay for it back in 2009 and told us how right here on This Is Hell. When we spoke with him about an analysis he had just co-authored titled Paying for a Strong Economy, Seven New Revenue Sources That Can Revitalize America and Reduce Financial Speculation. So if you want to learn how to live a happily unmarried life with the person you love and discover how we can pay for improving the infrastructure while reigning in financialization, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Minting the Trillion Dollar Coin. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst, that is, the drink. A 2018 special report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that 3.7 degrees Celsius of warming could cause $550 trillion worth of damages, more than all the wealth that currently exists. That's from Past This Is Hell guest Kate Aronoff, the climate case 
to mint the coin, her article in the New Republic, October 8th. Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, doesn't want to mint a trillion dollar coin. Her reason, it's a gimmick that would undermine the Federal Reserve. Does she mean it would undermine confidence in U.S. currency? I think it could actually fortify confidence because if we can mint a coin powerful enough to create a trillion dollars by its mere existence, who in the world could deny our power, let alone our currency's power? We are a god who can produce other gods like Zeus did from his forehead, thigh, or knee. And in God we trust, puny nerds. But I'm pretty sure she's mostly talking about the Fed's public image. People look at the Fed as a solid institution, the way they used to look at happy days. Before Fonzie went water skiing, jumped over a shark, and brought the entire happy days edifice crashing down around the Cunningham's ears. The name Richard Cunningham used to mean something. It meant reliability. He was a good, solid citizen. The name Richie Cunningham used to carry gravitas. Now, thanks to a water skiing greaser, no one recognizes the name Cunningham anymore. His legacy has been left in devastation, even as two trunkless legs of stone in a vast desert wasteland. Let me remind Madam Secretary, however, that the Fed is no mere 70s sitcom set in the 50s. What truly threatens to undermine the Fed is Ms. Yellen's shallow self-image, her childish fear of the world's opinion. Who cares if other nations or currencies laugh? Let your freak flag fly, Janet Yellen. Go ahead and dye your hair magenta. Wear that midriff-revealing half-t-shirt. Put pineapple on your pizza. Live a little, why don't you? Of course, there are risks. There's a risk that someone could accidentally swallow the coin on the way from the mint to the Fed. It's an outside risk, but a real one. Likewise, it could find its way into a vending machine, of which there are many on the way to the Fed, and somebody might need a Snickers in a hurry because they just weren't themselves that day. Neither of those problems is beyond repair, but they could lend a laughability to the coin strategy, one that might have real consequences, because laughing at Janet Yellen's choice in pizza toppings is one thing, but exposing the coin, the actual currency itself, to ridicule could have a disastrous effect on the strength of the dollars in the pocket of every single person in the world. This brings me to a quotation from a recent opinion piece by Nobel Prize-winning opinion economist Paul Krugman. By resorting to this gimmick, we could be sending the world a signal that we're a messed-up nation having big problems governing itself. Although the truth is that we are a messed-up nation, thanks to the nihilism of one of our two major parties, so minting the coin would arguably just be acknowledging the obvious. You see, Janet Yellen, if the Fed has to jump the shark, it's because the national speedboat full of drunks has charted a course which is now entirely obstructed by an endless barrier of jumping ramps with an infinite number of sharks on the other side. Krugman's column on the coin makes some other admissions. He hastily qualifies. He avers that money is made up, invented, that it only has the value we collectively somehow assign it, and that this was even true under the gold standard, a long-ago period dearly pined for by fascist minds who believe they're libertarians. Gold, he reminds us, currently has a monetary value far above its actual value in the world of actual ability, utility, and necessity. It has magic value 
due to its long history as a token of wealth that used to drive emperors, conquistadors, and prospecting old coots insane. Modern monetary theory says that money is created when central banks lend to other large institutions who then lend it to others, which creates a chain reaction keeping the economy supplied with usable money. Central banks, especially the U.S. Federal Reserve, theoretically have no limit on the amount of money they can create, as long as it keeps moving along. Austerity policies are forced on governments by those financial institutions with the power to choke off their money supply. The need for austerity isn't real. It has nothing to do with the real capabilities of a nation to provide opportunities, necessities, and services for its people. False scarcity is even used by the U.S. government itself to justify withholding public services from its own citizens that many other wealthy nations readily provide. We know this. Modern monetary theory knows this. The challenge now is to convince the vast majority of people to demand that we accomplish what needs to be done, which we can clearly pay for, given that we burn trillions in wars and tax giveaways to placate the most destructive industries and the greatest wealth hoarders. Kate Aronoff, whose quotation I began with, believes minting the trillion-dollar coin will go a long way toward demonstrating to the rank and file that money can be conjured into existence as needed. Krugman also believes minting the coin can be such a teachable moment, but also thinks it's one reason Janet Yellen and other stingy pinch pennies are against it. They don't want people to know there's no shortage of money. As I shared at the top, Aronoff quotes from a study by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, one of many gatherings of smart people devoting time to figuring out what we can expect as our global climate systems transform due to the warming planet and what humans can do to slow down the temperature rise created by their filling the atmosphere with greenhouse gases. We have thousands of the best minds working on this. Unfortunately, the U.S. government doesn't pay attention to the best minds, only to the loudest mouths and the creepiest libidos. Aronoff reports that, in a worst-case scenario, where we continue through the middle of this century, the present horrible course of polluting the air and water and excluding billions of people from long-term prosperity and opportunity, and the globe continues to warm at its projected rate through to the end of the century, we could see a 3.7 degrees Celsius rise in the global temperature from pre-industrial times, resulting in $550 trillion in damages, more than all the wealth that currently exists. How do you create wealth? You loan some coin. Where do you get the coin to loan? You mint it in your federal mint. But if we can't risk jumping the shark to solve the problem of the debt ceiling, how will we be willing to mint a $550 trillion coin when the time comes? If we mint $1 trillion coin now, we could easily be ready to mint 550 of them when damages must be repaired. I mean, given our past and current track record of dealing with systemic global problems, particularly environmental and economic ones, I think it'll probably come to that. Imagine... 55 rolls of quarters. Divide them into two bags because one will be too heavy. At least with bags of coins, no one will get it mixed up with their pocket change, so the candy machine issue and, of course, the swallowing issue are obviated. Make them out of aerospace-grade titanium so you don't have to draft Olympic weightlifters to carry them from the mint to the Fed. If the Olympics even exist by then... 
They seem like a poorly run concern managed by corrupt, out-of-touch elite weirdos. Remind you of any government? Maybe they should make shark jumping an Olympic sport. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Then uh, I would definitely watch the Olympics. Jeffy, unfortunately, I've gone over, so I have to go. Well, have a happy anniversary, darling. Uh, thank you very much, and stay beautiful, my friend. I will. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hal. Richard, do you have any more responses to this week's question from Hal, which is, yes, any last words? we do. From the... Uh... Some email and DMs. We have Cody K. I'll refer you to my butt, where the demon that resides there will provide you with the profanity of a sailor. Fit. Very nice. Hypocrite reader answers, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <laughs> That's your last words? I think somebody's already used those. We have a few more from the Twitterverse. Spooky Toots answers <laughs> ass. <laughs> nice. M. Rab, his answer is, I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> That's a good one. Hales answers, Martyr me, daddy. <laughs> Jeez. Two more. What are, what are any last words? Is the question this week. Humbug answers, Banana Hammock. <laughs> okay. No wait. Last one. Stray Shine answers, shoot, coward. You're only going to kill a man. <laughs> That's a regard quote. The answers I liked most to this week's question from hell. Any last words? I like Joel saying, Rosebud, Zach, the virtual, this virtual reality simulator is bupkis. Uh, Boki saying, I should have checked out the house on the rock. That's some great last words right there. And Aaron saying, hold on. How much will that shock from the defibrillator cost me? So that makes this week's winner. I know you're probably thinking I'm going to go with the House on the Rock reference because it's been all over the show lately, but come on. Zach's answer to this week's question from Ella, any last words? The, this virtual reality simulator is bupkis. That is definitely this week's winner to the question from hell. Zach, you have won your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. Just go to thisishell.com, click on support, see all of our stuff. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the t-shirts, the tote bags, the flash drive of the history of the 21st century so far here on This Is Hell, the coffee mug. Just choose whatever you want and we'll have it in the mail to you shortly. My answer to this week's question from hell, any last words? Any last words? My last words would be, before shooting, can you first please confirm with me that this is hell? Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not drinking water. Instead, try drinking slower and boost your blood sugar with carbs and sugars like honey on toast, which just seems ridiculous. Drinking alcohol while eating honey on toast or the other hangover cure we had because we had two for the first time ever neck a teaspoon of cumin whatever the hell that means thanks to this week's guests including Kay Whitlock 
and Nancy A. Heitzig, co-authors of Carceral Khan. Chuck Collins, thanks for being back on the show, co-author of the Institute for Policy Studies report, Silver Spoons Oligarchs on Dynastic Wealth here in the United States. And thanks to today's guest, Judith Levine, who talked to us about her article, Abortion is a Public Good. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today and to Jess Lipka for running the board earlier this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday on Patreon. Remember, Patreon's happening on Thursday this week at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll be celebrating my 34th anniversary of unwedded bliss and telling you why you should and should not do the same thing. And we'll be sharing a 2009 interview with Chuck Collins. 12 years ago, Chuck explained how the U.S. can pay for infrastructure improvements. And to be honest, it's too bad Joe Biden wasn't listening. Who knows? Maybe Joe will become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and finally figure it out. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>